We are in the second half of John chapter 3. We are working our way through the book of John, you remember, yes? Now, up until this point, I have kind of skipped John the Baptist, sort of not paid attention to him. Uh, We were paying attention to Jesus. And to be fair, I was planning on skipping him today too. I was just going to go to John chapter 4. But the Holy Spirit sort of drug me back into the last half of John chapter 3, the part we didn't cover, and said, hey, there might be some stuff here. And you know what? He was right. So uh, he so often is. So we're going to do John chapter 3, verses 22 through 26, and we're going to be talking about John the Baptist. Now, before we get into the passage, let me give you uh, just a couple things about John the Baptist. What what I want to do because I want you to be looking for this as we go through the passage, is I want to define uh, John's ministry. He, he defined his ministry with two words or two phrases. One, he said he was a forerunner, and two, he said he was a friend of the bridegroom. We're going to see that in just a minute. Now, the forerunner, we've already seen when we were in John 1, when they were asking him um, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? He said, no, no, no. And he quoted Isaiah 40. I'm the one in the wilderness saying, make straight the path of the Lord, prepare the way of the Lord. I'm the forerunner. I'm the one who goes before. Now, he didn't think he was Elijah, but we saw in back then when we were looking at it in Matthew 11, that Jesus said, yeah, he is. He, he is not only the forerunner, he's the forerunner come in the spirit of Elijah. Now, this is important. He's not just the one saying, make way, make straight the path for the Lord. He's coming in the spirit of Elijah, all right? So here's what this means. Forerunner, it's pretty simple. <clears throat> it just means he's there to point to Jesus. He's there to say, Jesus is coming, that's him. In fact, basically, the bulk of his ministry was to stand there and baptize people, and as Jesus came over the hill, he sees him, he points to him, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, that doesn't sound like that big a ministry, but that is possibly the most profound statement ever uttered by a man. Think about that. The one you've been waiting for, that's him. Behold, look, there he is, the Lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb, the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. No more animal sacrifices to cover our sins until something better comes along. That's the something better, right? So that is his prophetic forerunner announcement. The other thing is he comes in the spirit of Elijah. And a lot of times um, people don't understand Old Testament prophets. Uh, And Elijah was sort of an example or a model of Old Testament prophets. And um, when when I talk about the prophetic um. I usually say the main, if I boil it down, there's a lot of things that prophetic does. It has a lot of purposes. But the main purpose of the prophetic is to bring people into alignment with God. All right? Now, this is where people can get that wrong. Elijah is a great example. He is up on Mount Carmel, and he's saying, hey, guys, if God's God, serve him. If Baal's God, serve him. But make a decision and go all in on it. Get out of the middle. And this is what prophets do. And what I want you to see is a lot of times people will associate prophets with repentance. And so you get, you know, New Testament prophet guys who want to call out sin and put it on the Internet. Because, uh, you know, it's easier to be prophetic on the Internet, right? <clears throat> so uh, this is not primarily what prophets do. That's half the battle. Um, they do address sin and repentance, But, you know, repentance means to turn 180 degrees. Let me demonstrate. If I'm facing this way and I repent, I am now facing this way. Everyone understand? That was math. Good? Okay. Now, if I'm facing this way and that's sin and some prophetic God comes along and says, repent of your sin, and I go, okay, I won't. I won't do that anymore. I'll just go this way and do whatever's out here. Have I repented? 
No, because we don't just turn from our sin, we turn to him. And this is what I want you to understand. The true spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. It's not just repent of your sins. It's turn from these things that are useless and harmful to him, to God, to Jesus. It's return to him. Uh, so think, and especially the minor prophets, towards the end of the prophetic period, <clears throat> you see it dozens of times. Return to him, return to him, return to him. And so this is the ministry of Elijah. Return to God. Make a choice. Go all in, one way or the other, right? And so John the Baptist comes in this ministry calling people to alignment with God. And then, <coughs> pardon me, he also comes in the ministry of the friend of a bridegroom, which we'll talk about when we get there. Cool? You guys feel free to have a drink too while I pause. Okay, now let's begin to look at the passage and work through it. In uh, verses 22 through 24, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim. I'm not even sure if I said those right. Because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. <coughs> so here's what's going on. They're in Judea, and Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. Now, we're going to learn in John 4, in the very next chapter, verse 2, that Jesus wasn't actually baptizing. His disciples were doing He had delegated the baptizing. Uh, so, you know, he's a good leader. He knows how to delegate. So his disciples are baptizing, and John and his disciples are baptizing nearby. If you look it up on a map, uh, it's, near, it's on the Jordan, but a little bit north of Judea. So they're nearby, and they're baptizing, Okay. Now, let's get on to <clears throat> verse 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Now, it doesn't tell us the nature of the dispute, um, what they were disputing, who was mad and why. It just tells us it was about purification. So this seems like a good time to learn a little bit about what the Jews thought about purification. It actually would have been really good to have done this before uh, Friday night. <coughs> Pardon me. But we'll do it now. Okay, so. Uh, no, I've already had like three of those. It's just, it's just, I don't know. I'm, my plan is to ignore it. All right. Um, so. Purification was a very familiar concept. This, the first time we see baptisms really uh, is when John shows up on the scene. And if you, if you aren't careful, you think it's a new thing. Uh, John comes along and now we're baptizing people. Well, it's not a new thing. Um, it's called a mikvah. And it is a, something that goes all the way back to <clears throat> the original temple and all that stuff. Um, the Jews... Uh, would it was a ritual cleansing or purification. It might be for something specific. It might just be um, they would go through a mikvah where they'd get in the water and they'd just get cleansed before they went into the temple. So this was very common. It was the culture they understood that this was a ritual purification. They still had the animal sacrifices for sin, still had the scapegoat, still had the once a year offering at Yom Kippur, all that. But <clears throat> uh, the we're very familiar with this culture of baptism. What we call it baptism, they call it mikvah. All right? Ceremonial cleansing. Got it? So keep this in mind because this is going to come into where we're going. Um, it means, the word means two things, and it's super interesting. The first thing it means, it is sometimes translated hope, as in to eagerly and expectantly wait for something. So that's kind of interesting, this ritual cleansing in hope of something future. Anybody have any ideas on that one? Shouldn't have to explain that too much. Okay. The other thing is it mean, it's often translated reservoir. And here's the thing. It can't just be uh, water. It has to be flowing water. So for example, if you go to a, an Orthodox synagogue and you say, hey, I want to do the mikvah thing, uh, they go, great. They don't just turn on the tap and fill a bathtub. 
it, uh, they have rules. It has to be touching the ground uh, so that it'll be on their foundation. And it has to be flowing water. So they, the real orthodox ones, uh, they won't just like turn it. It's not like the water that comes from Melbourne. They actually have a cistern to collect rainwater to fill the mikvah because it has to be flowing water or living water. Now think about, keep in your mind, how many times Jesus used the term living water. We're going to see it again really soon in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, right? Living water. They were very familiar with this concept of living water, of mikvah, of purification, of <clears throat> the source. So, uh, in fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 10, when it says God divided the land from the waters, it says he called the land, you know, land, and he called the waters mikvah, a reservoir. And so, for it's, it's kind of a, a mystical thing for the Jews going all the way back to creation, this living water, this life-giving water, okay? And I, I probably have only scratched the surface of all the implications of that. But I want you to see that it's very culturally relevant to them, so much so that John and uh, the, John's disciples and the Jews are having an argument over purification and why are you baptizing this way and what are you doing and uh, all that, right? <clears throat> now, here's where I think it's interesting, and this is just fun. In Jeremiah 17, verses 13 and 14, we read this prophecy, which is, again, clearly about Jesus. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel. Guess what the word is for hope? Mikvah. Isn't that cool? O Lord, the mikvah of Israel, the hope of purification. <clears throat> Pardon me. All who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. That just means put to shame. <clears throat> because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. See it? Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. And so there's this reference to the mikvah of God, the, the hope of Israel. The one who is the fountain or the source of living waters. The one who is the source of healing and salvation. It's a very clear prophetic verse for Jesus, which they didn't fully understand. It's easier now for us to look back and see it, right? So, here's the thing. <clears throat> we get what this means. We get that Jesus is the fountain of living waters. So, we read this earlier in John 1. Jesus shows up. And John baptizes him. He shows up, and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb, the one with no sin who qualifies to take away the sin of the world. we just seen from this verse in Jeremiah that Jesus is the hope of Israel. He's the fountain of living waters. And he comes to John, a man, to be baptized. Right? Now, what did Jesus, the perfect Lamb, the fountain of living waters, need to be baptized for. Yeah, that's what John thought. Let's read. <clears throat> Parallel passage in Matthew chapter 3. John says, <clears throat> or we'll get there. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? Hey, something's backwards here, God. You are the source of living water. You are the Son of God. You are the fountain of righteousness. Why are you coming for a ritual purification cleansing? Right? And it's a good point. It's an excellent question. And Jesus doesn't fully really answer it or explain it. And so I, I don't know for sure. <clears throat> but Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And I don't know for sure what he means by that because there's no unrighteousness in him. So I don't know what righteousness he's fulfilling. Maybe it's just he's doing all the things that would be necessary to go present himself in the temple. Uh, lots of, I could speculate, but why bother? Uh, he just said, do it. And John said, all right. So then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And here's what I want you to see. 
the Father, who at any time, and I was thinking a really good time for the Father to have done this would have been after <clears throat> in John 2, when Jesus turned over all the tables and then went into the temple and started healing people. This would have been a good time for the voice of God to go, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Notice how he's healing the sick. Don't you think? <clears throat> but God didn't ask me. Uh, he picked here at his baptism to say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so I suspect that what he was after, he is using the mikvah to identify the son of God who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's trying to connect in their minds this culture they already have, Jesus, with purification, with the baptism. You understand? Because it's going to change. They've been doing ritual purification up till now. What's soon going to happen, they're still going to be performing mikvahs by the book of Acts, but they're not baptizing people to be ceremonially cleansed anymore. They're baptizing people into Jesus Christ to be permanently cleansed of their sin, to be forgiven of all unrighteousness. You see it? And so he's taken the culture they already understand, and he picks, the father picks this time to go, that's my son who I'm well pleased in. He's already pure. I'm pleased with him. And uh, I've just connected him to purification. So they're going to understand years from now, oh, we're being baptized. We're being purified by Jesus. We don't need the mikveh anymore. We need the man Jesus Christ and to be baptized into him. You follow me? <clears throat> so he's speaking this into the culture. And the reason this is important is because <clears throat> like so many of us, uh, John's disciples are going to miss the point. All right, pregnant pause. Okay, um, <clears throat> let's go on with verse 26. And <clears throat> after the, John's disciples got done arguing with the Jews, it says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, you know, Jesus, that guy, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Hear what he's saying? Hear what his disciples are saying? Hey, uh, <coughs> they missed the point. The point of John's message, which he's going to give them, is, yeah, all are supposed to come to him. But they're going, hey, uh, our ministry uh, is, is being taken away. People are going to a different church, John. People are leaving our church and going to the church just up the road. This is not right. You with me? We wouldn't do that, right? <laughs> this isn't right, John. This is our, you started baptizing. This was your ministry. You're John the Baptist. What are they doing baptizing people? I saw one of, one of Jesus' disciples do my patented, you know, one-hand baptism. Be baptized. <laughs> he did it. I, I invented that. Am I, am I putting too much on him, you think? I know human nature. Right? Any of you guys gotten bent about a church down the road? And somebody going there or something happening or they're doing something that you started? Or <clears throat> Anyway, the point is, I think John's disciples have missed entirely the point that John the Baptist was trying to make in John chapter 1. And so here's what John does. For the rest of the passage, John says, all right, disciples, sit down. School is in session. I'm going to teach you what you need to know about ministry from here on. So if you have any aspirations for doing ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ, you should listen. This is a good class, all right? This is John the Baptist's school of ministry. Are you ready? All right, verse 27. He starts with this, John's answer and said to him, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Now, I put the really important parts in bold in your notes, so pay attention to that. <clears throat> the first really important part is this, all ownership is in heaven. You own nothing. All ownership is in heaven. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the people and all who dwell therein, right? 
And so they're going, hey, this is our ministry. And, and uh, John's going, no, it isn't. God owns everything. You need to start with that, dude. Disciples, you need to get that. John, God owns everything. All ownership. All ownership is in heaven. <clears throat> this gets really interesting. You start applying this to things like your children. Are they yours or are they God's? It's a good question, isn't it? <clears throat> we'll talk more. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, Who makes you to differ from another? Who does? God. And what do you have that you did not receive? Do you, do anything you have on your own, or was it given to you from God? Now, if you did, <coughs> pardon me, if you did receive it, why do you glory or boast as if you had not received it? Just, I don't care how awesome you are. You got nothing to brag about. It's just a gift from God. Right? <coughs> I was impressed last night. I was watching um, the Ohio State game. I wasn't super impressed with the Ohio State game. <laughs> we, we did win, but it was a little ugly. Anyway, <coughs> dang it. Sorry. At the end, um, uh, Ohio State's leading receiver broke all kinds of records. Sophomore, really good. It had like 325 yards pass, uh, uh, pass receptions and three touchdowns. Blew away a bunch of records. And so, of course, he's the MVP, and they're interviewing me afterwards. And here's what he said. Now, you expect the, you know, glory to God or something, right? He goes, in total humility, totally straight-faced, he goes, uh, and they're asking him, you know, what's, what is it about you, whatever, how'd you do this, something like that. I can't remember the question. He goes, well, he goes, really, I'm just gifted from God. He goes, yeah. But, he, but it's like you really got it. And he goes, he goes, this is what I pray for. I shouldn't be surprised when I get what I pray for. And I went, dang, that young man gets it. He gets that he ain't all that. He's just been gifted from God. Isn't that awesome? So I like him now. Plus, he's a receiver, and, you know, I like that. <clears throat> Anyway, <clears throat> the point he's trying to make here is that all ownership is in heaven. All ownership is in heaven. We really got to get that. Now, I'm putting things in bold because... <coughs> here we go. Uh, because at the end of this, um, I want to find out, do we want to be forerunners? Do we want to be friends of the bridegroom? Good. One person said yes. Okay. <laughs> These bold things are going to be John's school of ministry of how we do this. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So, for he says, first, all ownership is in heaven. And then in verses 28 and 29, he's going to remind them of his ministry. All right. He's going to explain to them, guys, I don't think you remember what my ministry is. So let me tell you, since you're my disciples and you work for me. All right, verse 28. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. So he just reminds them, guys, my ministry isn't baptism. I know they call me John the Baptist, but that's just what I do. My ministry is a forerunner ministry. I point to Jesus. That's my ministry. I don't need to baptize. You guys can baptize. Yeah. So he's reminding them, <clears throat> this isn't about who gets to baptize. That was they were bent about, right? There's people baptizing. That's our ministry. This is not my ministry. My ministry is pointing to Jesus. Right? So, he reminds them. This, I put in bold, uh, it takes a bit of humility to recognize that your entire ministry is to point to someone else. You will not be a forerunner, friend of the bridegroom, unless you radically embrace the concept of humility. Just saying. Okay, we'll move on. <clears throat> and then in verse 29, he gives him the second part of his ministry. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And so he goes, look, I have two ministries. <clears throat> I'm a forerunner. I point to Jesus. And I'm a friend of the bridegroom. Let's see if we can understand what it means to be a friend of the bridegroom. The first thing he says is, he gets the bride. Now, that, 
sounds simple, but I want to ponder that for a bit. The bridegroom gets the bride. The friend of the bridegroom doesn't. Okay? Let me tell you a story. Uh, <clears throat> I was teaching high school a few, I don't know, eight or ten years ago. Rachel would know how long ago it was. Um, and uh, I was doing it part-time because we were a little tight here. So, like, just three, you know, three hours in the morning. And over at a local Christian school. And I was making a point of trying to make relationship with the young men and women there, you know, to have impact. And so, you know, at lunchtime, I'm out playing basketball with them and talking to them and all that stuff, teaching them math because they loved that. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and it, uh, uh, Meg would do these plays, and she'd always need a couple of adults for the plays, so she kept roking, she'd call them the small skits, and then she'd hand me a 25-page script. Uh, <laughs> And so I'm playing Jesus in one of these plays, right? So we get done with the practice, and we're going out to lunch or something, and I'm walking with one of the young men. He goes, hey, Mr. Howard, you're a pretty good Jesus. And, uh, and I just smile, and, and he kind of grins, and he goes, he goes, you're still not him, though. Now, he's just joking around. You get that. But it pierces me. Like, God anoints it. And I, and, I, and I let him go on, and I stop, and I go, what was that? And, God, and, and this is the sense of what God was communicating to me, was uh, God's going, look, I, I like that you're building relationship with these kids. I just want to remind you, your job isn't to build relationship with them, and that, or at least that's not the end. Your job is to bring them into relationship with me. Don't stop with building a relationship with them. You understand? It's really easy in ministry to think your job is connecting with people and doing ministry. <clears throat> it's not complete until we've connected people to him. I love, uh, can we get this picture? This is Romeo and Juliet. <coughs> now, and that's the friar guy, I forget his name. You might know? Okay, friar guy, that's it. So here's what's happening. First, let me tell you the word. Bobby Connor is a pretty significant prophet. He has like signs and wonders stuff happen, you know, snow when it's not supposed to, cool things like that. It'd be good to have him in Florida. But uh, he, um, he came here one time, he was speaking, he told a story, and the, and the context of the story was the danger of the prophetic. And he said, in the story, God kind of, I don't remember if it was a dream or a vision, but God played this scene for him. Here's the scene. Um, the friar is going to help them, remember, Romeo and Juliet, to get married. So they come together at night to work all this thing out with the fake poison and all that stuff, right? And as soon as Romeo and Juliet see each other, they want to embrace, and they try to run to each other. And the friar steps between them and says, we're not having any of that. Y'all ain't married yet. None of this hugging, right? So you know the scene. So God shows Bobby the scene, and in the context of the prophetic, God says, Bobby, don't you ever do that with me and my people. Don't you ever stand between me and my people and hold us apart. Do you understand what God's saying? It's really easy to get our identity in ministry, especially the prophetic. Before you know it, you're kind of thinking it's cool that people come to you to hear God. That is divination. Now, God will use you to encourage people. But people coming to you to hear God is divination. Your job is to get them to go to Jesus to hear him. Right? Not to stand between them and be a mediator between God and men. First Timothy 2. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Don't you be that. You understand what I'm saying? He gets the bride. Now, I'm pastor, so I have some responsibility to you guys as sheep. But you're not really my sheep. You're his sheep. And if I lose sight of that, I'm in trouble. He gets the bride. You aren't here for me. You aren't here for church on the rock. You're here for him. Right? So you understand how this can be messed up. Human nature. We like to own stuff. And so... This is what John the Baptist is saying. Say, hey, guys, those people that went over there, 
Uh, they weren't mine anyway. That's the bride. He gets the bride. They're not our people. They're not your people. I don't care what church they go to. They're his people. Now I, I want them to go to a church that tells them good stuff. <clears throat> you following me? So the idea is to connect to him. In the end of this passage, he says, therefore, my joy is fulfilled. What, what he's saying, <coughs> his disciples are saying, hey, they're leaving our ministry and going over to Jesus' ministry. That's a bad thing. And uh, John's saying, that's a good thing. That's my ministry. And I'm happy about that. I'm happy that they've graduated from me to Jesus. That they've gone to, directly to him bypass me. So I am happy to be available for you, and that's fine, but it's way better when you don't need me. And you go, well, thanks, Tony, but I'll, I'll just talk to Jesus, and I think he and I can work it out. I love when that happens. Plus, I get to take a nap. You understand what I'm saying? You got to get this. This is kind of deep, guys. He gets the bride. is isn't really about us. He gets the bride. This is an important part of doing ministry. <clears throat> I asked you earlier about your kids. Are they your kids? Or does he get them? When does he get them? Do you have the concept that you're just preparing them for him? <clears throat> so he says that his joy is in hearing God's voice. He says, uh, the bridegroom stands and hears him. I've uh, seen this so much in the New Testament where it talks about us hearing God. I'll give you a couple passages here. Um, Matthew 17, 5, uh, Jesus is glorified on the mountain, <clears throat> and the Father speaks, and he says, this is my son, listen to him. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I've concluded that my entire ministry is just listening to Jesus' voice. That's it. What are you called to do? Listen to Jesus' voice. And then, you know, try and do what he says. I can read about it. I can hear him. But you understand what I'm saying. <clears throat> and so John's saying, look, my joy isn't in the people being my people. My joy is in hearing his voice. In other words, in serving his agenda. Remember in John 5, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Let me say that another way. <clears throat> My entire ministry is activating the agenda of the Father. I have no agenda. I just hear his voice. I just do what I see him doing. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. He's saying, My joy is just in hearing his voice. So again, uh, that's where we go back to whatever ministry you have, raising your kids, uh, you know, working the food pantry, whatever. Uh, at the end of the day, it's just, I, I want to hear his voice and kind of try and do what he says, and we'll serve people that way. It's really about service. It's about serving his agenda and not our agenda. And so <clears throat> that means when you get kids, you're going, God, what are these kids for? What's that one for? Uh, what the heck is that one for? How do I serve your agenda with that kid? How do I prepare that kid to be your kid, not my kid? And obviously, you don't, you know, you don't turn them over to God on their own at five. There's a process. But you understand what I'm saying. See, we got to get this. If we're going to do ministry the way Jesus wants to do ministry, this is John the Baptist's awesome school of ministry. Are you getting anything out of this? Yeah. Okay, good. All right, let's go on. Verse 30 he says this great saying, he must increase, but I must decrease. How many of you have heard that before? How many of you have heard people say it backwards? I must decrease, he must increase. I've heard it a lot. Now, there's a reason for that. The order is important. I'm telling you, human nature says, we read that verse and we think, I've got to find a way to decrease so I can have more of God. We do. We put, we put the order backwards. He must, I must decrease so he can increase. And he goes, no, 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 the order's important. You just worry about me increasing. The decrease will happen all by itself. 
right? I'm telling you, this is important, and people don't often get this. Um, let's look at a couple verses where this comes up. In Galatians 5.16, he says, <coughs> Pardon me. But walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. How many of you have lived like you believed, if I don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh, then God will let me walk in the Spirit? Don't we? Because we want to think it's about our effort. And he goes, no, 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 no. You aren't any good at not walking in the flesh. You walk in the Spirit, I'll take care of the flesh. You understand? It's a focus issue. The order is important. Walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let's look at another one. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Um, let us uh, throw off the sins and weights that so easily ensnare us. Who wants to do that? Verse 1. I'd love to throw off the sins and weights that so easily ensnare us. I've been trying to throw off weights and sins for years, right? How do we do that? What's verse 2 say? Anybody remember? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Well, if I could just get my faith finished, I could fix my eyes on Jesus. You can't get your faith finished. You got to fix your eyes on Jesus. He'll finish your faith. He authored it anyway. Are you with me? You see what I'm saying? The order is important. Uh, what's the other one I was going to look at? Um, oh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We can be changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Anybody remember how that happens? I remember 1 Corinthians 3.18. But beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image. We become what we behold. It's literally saying, if you look at the glory of Jesus, you'll be changed from glory to glory like him. And what the devil wants us to do is look at our failures and our sin in our, uh, our ministry, and our this, and our that, and how we don't measure up. And God's going, look, just look at Jesus, and he'll change you. Fix your eyes on him. Now, I'm not saying ignore sin and anything goes and all that. You guys get that. I'm saying the solution is not to make ourselves better. The solution is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so <clears throat> what John's saying here in verse 30 is we just have to be super Jesus-focused. Don't get focused on other stuff. Don't get focused on whether or not they stole your baptism technique. <laughs> get focused on Jesus. Amen? Okay. Now, <clears throat> verses 31 through 32. We're going to make it. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is good. So what he's doing there, he's contrasting one come from heaven and people on earth and how they have different perspectives. You can imagine his perspective might be better, yeah? So he is the one from heaven. Remember, we read this in John 1.14, the Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, he's making a big deal out of this. He's going, guys, God, who created everything, who lives in heaven, came to earth and walked around. We should pay attention to what he's saying. We have the perspective of this little speck in the universe. He has this, the universe in his hand. His perspective might be better. That's what <clears throat> Isaiah uh, 55 is saying when he says, My thoughts are, are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, that just sounds like we can't grasp it, right? But here's the awesome thing. He's come to earth, and he's beginning to speak his thoughts and his ways to us so that we can grasp heaven's perspective. Isn't that wild? <clears throat> and so we need to begin to do that. But here's the thing. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, we looked at this earlier. <clears throat> the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit because they're foolish to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So Paul, I'm sorry, John, is contrasting the earthly and the heavenly. He goes, if you're locked into the earthly, you won't even be able to receive the heavenly. So you have to be able to, <coughs> you have to, be able to change your perspective. Now, here's what I mean by that. 
Um, one of the things that a friend of the bridegroom, a forerunner, does is maintains heaven's perspective to the highest degree possible. Now, here's what I mean by maintaining heaven's perspective. And I actually believe this. I actually believe there are a lot of ways you can define the apostolic. I, my primary def definition of the apostolic spirit is, is a propensity to start with the perspective of heaven, not the perspective of earth, to bring heaven to earth, like the Lord's Prayer. And so when you see a political situation or a work situation or whatever, you're not just going, hey, what's going on here? You're going, God, what are you doing? What are you up to in this situation? What's the heavenly perspective on this thing that I can see just little parts of around me? There's been a lot of times where I was in spiritual warfare, and I'm rebuking the devil, and at some point God goes, uh, well, yeah, he's involved, but a whole bunch of this is me. And I'm like, get out of town. Why are you doing this? And well, there's this issue in your heart I'm working on. See right there? Ah, oh, yeah, you're right. That is there. Now, if I don't get heaven's perspective, if all I got is a book that says, when this happens, I rebuke devils, I'm not going to get very far. Right? But if I get heaven's perspective, God goes, yeah, uh, let's, let's rebuke the thing in your heart. Let's, uh, let's go after that. Okay, God. And that, that worked a lot better. You, you understand? Heaven's perspective. God will use things we can't imagine. There's things going on we have no idea in our lives, in the church, in the world. And God's up to stuff, and we just don't get it because we are so limited in our perspective, our earthly perspective. The apostolic, the forerunner, <clears throat> the friend of the bridegroom is going, God, what are you doing? I ask that question a lot. It's fun to watch the news and do that. God, what are you doing? It's actually not that much fun to watch the news anymore at all. But, but when I do, I like to ask that question. God, what are you doing in that thing? For example, I'll give you one. Uh, all the rioting and fighting and all that. I'm, I'm, I'm going, God, what the heck is up with this? This was a couple years ago, and, and he brought this verse to mind. Be careful if you bite and devour one another, lest you consume one another. And I understood this is going to come back on them. They're going to start to bite each other. And it's happening. And I just went, oh, okay, God, do what you want to do. I'll just pray. I'll just pray that verse. It's fun to get his perspective on things happening in the earth. It's more peaceful. I don't feel like I have to fix stuff. All right? So, heaven's perspective. <coughs> Pardon me. All right, three more verses. I think we can do it. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, and we've already talked about that. This is the guy from heaven who's speaking from heaven's perspective. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. Now that is an interesting phrase. God does not give the Spirit by measure. Apparently, God is not stingy with his Holy Spirit. We might think he is. Oh, if I'm good enough, God, maybe give me a smidge more Holy Spirit. It's not what this passage says, is it? Come on. All right. I don't know if you guys are getting this. You still kind of believe that uh, he's measuring the Spirit to you? So, I want to look at some verses here on this passage. In, uh, we already looked at John 1, <clears throat> where it says, Jesus is the Son of God, the giver of the Holy Spirit. And he's God, and God doesn't give the Spirit without measure. So that means you get the Spirit without measure. Okay, I want you to try and believe that. Galatians 4, 6, because we are sons, we looked at all these verses, he has given us his spirit, the spirit of God. John 3, we just looked at this last time, John 3, 3 through 8, you must be born again. What did that mean? You must be born of the spirit. You have to have the spirit. You really need the spirit. In Acts, wait, don't do any ministry until you're endued with power from the spirit, right? Romans 8, 14, as many are led by the Spirit of God. These are sons of God. Is all this starting to make sense? He's the giver of the Spirit. He doesn't give the Spirit with measure. And so what I think John is pointing out here is if we're going to be forerunners, if we're going to be friends of the bridegroom, we need to pursue unmeasured reliance on the Holy Spirit. 
unmeasured reliance on the Holy Spirit, not just when I'm at church on Sunday. The Holy Spirit will help me with my math homework. Seriously, he will. I know students who've done that. And I think that was maybe the only way they were going to make it. <laughs> you got me? Unmeasured reliance on the Holy Spirit. Now, that does not mean that you get everything the Holy Spirit has necessarily. I saw a poster one time. It's actually right up there on the telephone pole. I couldn't believe it. Come some other meeting, see all nine gifts in one man. And I just, I just shook my head and went, oh God, what is the matter with us? Doesn't mean you get all nine gifts. It does mean if you listen to his voice and you do what he says, you get whatever you need. You have unmeasured access and reliance on the Holy Spirit. I don't know how many gifts you're going to get or what gifts you're going to get, but he'll give you what you need. Whatever you need to do what he wants you to do, he'll give it to you. Amen? You, have, uh, you can have unmeasured reliance on his Holy Spirit. Cool? <clears throat> okay. Um, let's go on a little bit more. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Because the Father loves the Son, he made him preeminent in everything. I, it, it's, guys, this is really so simple. I, you understand this. The Father's going, look, I really love Jesus. I've given him everything. I've given him you and you and you and you and this and that and the cars and the dogs. All of it, it's all his. All his. He gets the preeminence. If you want to study this, and you probably should, I would recommend reading Colossians 1, verse 13 through 20. It talks about, first of all, us being translated into the kingdom of the Son of His love. God the Father goes, I'm going to make a kingdom. Why? Because I love Jesus. I'm going to make one just for Him. And you're invited. I'll translate you into the kingdom that I made just because I love Jesus. And then there's about four verses about how He's the preeminent one, and He'll have the preeminence in all things. And then it says, it ends with, and I've decided that all of the fullness is going to dwell in Him. So you should get in him because there's fullness there. You with me? And so it's a simple concept, but it's a deep concept that we need to go deeper into. That it's about the preeminence of Jesus. And verse 36, which we already looked at when we were doing the first part of John 3. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. We said it's very simple. It's very binary. Either you get the wrath of God or the love of God. At the end of the day, one of those two. And it's all based on whether you accept or deny Jesus. It really is that simple. And so the last thing that we need to know is that it is a Christ alone gospel. The forerunner message. The friend of the bridegroom message. It's a Christ alone gospel. Christ alone, period. Now, uh, we've already seen four times, twice in, first in John 1 and twice in John 3, him referred to as the only begotten Son of God. He is the way, the truth, the life, the only begotten Son of God. That's it. That's the gospel. And if you're going to be a forerunner, if you're going to be uh, <clears throat> a friend of the bridegroom, we cannot compromise the gospel. Now, when I say that, you probably think in terms of, well, yeah, but you can still, or this thing, or uh, blah, 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 but he really didn't mean that, and you're okay. That kind of compromise, and we all get that. Cheap grace. But there's a compromise on the other end. Uh, there's nothing added to it. Well, yeah, Jesus is the only way, plus if you go to the right church, or plus if you behave this way or plus this, or plus that. There's nothing taken away from it. There's nothing added to it. If you're good enough, no. It's all just him. The mikvah, the fountain of life. The only way to be cleansed of our sin and have eternal life. Amen? <coughs> so, I believe this. Um, <coughs> pardon me. 
The, I love the prophecy in Malachi 4 about before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will send Elijah, uh, who will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children of the fathers, right? Um, and I believe John the Baptist, because Jesus said, uh, embodied that in the first coming. He, he uh, embodied the spirit of Elijah. I don't know what that will look like in the second coming, but I am suspicious that it that it might be it might be a man who embodies it in a tangible way like John the Baptist, but I'm wondering if it isn't the church. I'm wondering if it isn't in addition to that an entire <coughs> pardon me last day's church walking in a forerunner friend of the bridegroom ministry. You guys want to anybody here want to do that? Okay, good. I got at least seven more hands than last time. This is good. I'm making headway. I want to be a forerunner pointing to Jesus. I want to be a friend of the bridegroom. And so we've just gone through John the Baptist's school of ministry to be a forerunner, to be a friend of the bridegroom. Let's review this as the band comes up. We have to recognize that all ownership is in heaven. We own nothing. It's all his. It's important. We have to humble ourselves and commit that we're going to point to Jesus and not us. Harder than it looks like, isn't it? We have to, (coughs) especially as we begin to minister to people, recognize that he gets the bride, that our joy is in hearing his voice and serving his agenda and serving his bride. We have to maintain a Jesus focus, not focus overly on our ministry or our issues or whatever. Again, not that we don't pay attention to them, but our primary focus has to be fixing our eyes on Jesus. We have to try as often as we can to maintain a perspective from heaven, not an earthly perspective. You have to hear God's voice to do that. You won't get heaven's perspective unless you can hear God. We have to engage in unmeasured reliance on his spirit. It's his ministry. It's kind of freeing. I don't really worry about whether Church on the Rock grows or doesn't or makes it or not. I go, it's your church, God. Do what you want. I'm going to try real hard to obey you. Do what you tell me. But the results are your problem. Unless I screw up, then they're my problem. <laughs> right? We're going to maintain, especially from the pulpit, anyway. Uh, in our ministry, is we teach our kids, we're going to maintain the preeminence of Christ and a Christ alone gospel, that it's about him, that it's for him. Amen? All right. Who wants to be a friend of the bridegroom? Okay. I really want you to think about that. I think we need to ponder these things. I've been praying that lately. Jesus, I want to be your friend. I feel like I know you from too much of a distance. I want to be your friend. That's just my prayer. So I want to invite you as we go back into worship just to dialogue with God over all this stuff. Maybe hear his voice. Amen.